Blog Talk Radio. We assembled here today are issuing a new decree to be heard in every city, in every foreign capital, and in every hall of power. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. Every decision on trade, on taxes, on immigration, on foreign affairs will be made to benefit American workers and American families. We must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries making our products stealing our companies, and destroying our jobs. Protection will lead to great prosperity and strength. I will fight for you with every breath in my body, and I will never, ever let you down. I am your voice. So to every parent who dreams for their child, and every child who dreams for their future, I say these words to you tonight. I am with you, I will fight for you, and I will win for you. To all Americans tonight, in all of our cities, and in all of our towns, I make this promise. We will make America strong again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And we will make America great again. God bless you, and good night. I love you.
song. Happy Monday, everybody! Thank you for tuning into the Rory Sauter Show. I'm Rory Sauter, your host. I hope you had a fantastic weekend. I have missed you all since I've been a, since uh, since we last had our show, uh, which was Thursday. All our shows last week were absolutely incredible. Uh, Thursday's show was fantastic. Tuesday's show was fantastic. And Monday's show was fantastic. So much great dialogue, so many things addressed, uh, unbelievable guests. Uh, it's everything you could want in a show. And I tell you, my co-host and the, the show panel is, is quite impressive. You guys uh, are doing a fantastic job, and I want you all to know that. Uh, the, the show, literally, every single episode just gets better and better. It's really everything you would want in a show. I mean, there's so much of a variety and so, so much uh, – you know, that we, that we cover and that we uh, establish uh, so many. Like, it's amazing. It really is because so many different shows and channels are so one-dimensional and, you know, jaded in a sense. But we are so uh, definitely, um, you know, diverse and uh, uh, we, get, we get a huge variety. We, we give, a, we give a, uh, a lot of options. I, I will say that. Uh, I do, like always, want to thank all my guests, my co-hosts, my audience and sponsors, you guys are absolutely uh, amazing, and the show just keeps getting better and better. Like I said, we're listened to in 24 different countries on nearly 70 online platforms. And if you miss any past clips, past episodes, or need 24/7 breaking news coverage, visit my media site, thenextnexgenusa.com. And also remember, in about a month, we will be launching our brand new 24/7 media network, uh, and we have about 80 to 85% of the show slots with notable names already filled up. The people will be doing their own show. Uh, people overseas uh, will be doing their own programs, as well as, obviously, the majority will be famous people in, this, in our country. Uh, we have America's Toughest Sheriff, Joe Arpaio, and the, the director of Jihad Watch, Robert Spencer, that will be the faces of the company. Uh, so we're really excited about that and very fortunate. God, guys, what a weekend in the news. What a weekend in the news. I mean, it was just story after story, headline after headline. Uh, it never ends. I mean, this is probably one of the busiest weekends I've ever seen uh, in the news. Uh, just constant, constant. Uh, I, do, I do want to welcome to the show uh, doctor, award-winning speaker, veteran, Professor, technology expert, best-selling author, and currently the Commissioner of Parks and Recreation for Maricopa County, Dr. Bob Branch. How are you, sir? I'm doing fantastic, Rory. How was your weekend? It was great, and uh, I hope you and everybody else uh, had a great weekend. I hope it was productive. I hope it went accordingly. I hope it was uh, everything it should have been. Well, I, I learned something on Friday. The Scorpion? I, I, I learned I that... <laughs> I, I learned what a scorpion sting felt like. <laughs> Man, I tell so, you, uh, it's never happened. It's never happened to me, but uh, I heard it's it's quite painful. Well, I tell you what, you, you know, anybody that has been listening to your show knows that on occasions, especially when you're talking about Alyssa Milano or AOC, you you tend to yeah. speak French quite fluently, and. uh <laughs> 
I, I, I learned that uh, in the middle of the night when you step on a scorpion, you, you can speak French really quickly. I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't doubt it, Dr. Branch. I, I can only imagine, especially when you're waking up, and that's the, pretty much the first thing that happens to you when you stand up. Well, I'll tell you what. I, I was walking back to the bed in the middle of the night. Lights are out, stepped, and it felt like you stepped on a sharp stone. And it was like, what the heck? Then you took another step, and the pain just shot up your leg. And it was like, oh, man. And my wife woke up, said, what's wrong? And I said, I know I stepped on a scorpion. We turned the light on, and there was the little bugger there just standing right there, tail up in the air, the the, the stinger up in the air. It's, it was saying, come on, I stung you. It's about time you fall down. I want to eat you. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. <laughs> I survived. I, mean, I survived. Well, I'm glad you're okay. I'm glad everything, you know, uh, turned out uh, not to be, you know, extremely serious. Because I know some people that get scorpion bites can suffer. They can suffer badly. You know, certain things can happen to them. Well, a little bark scorpion can kill a little child or an older person. And, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm glad. Uh, you know, it, it was a little bark scorpion. Right. And I'm glad that, uh, you know, everything worked out all right. Absolutely, my friend. Uh, I also would like to welcome to the show uh, founder of Republicans United, founder of College Republicans United, and currently the leader of Nationalists United, Kevin DeKuyper. Kevin, how are you? I'm doing so wonderfully, and i got to say, we are all so thankful and so pleased to have such a wonderful host it ha- that has done such a fantastic job, such a successful job at organizing all this together. And uh, on top of that, I got to say that uh, we are very thankful for a president that has been able to lead this country, to lead our party, and to lead this conversation to, you know, make our country a, a much better place. So thank you, Roy. Thank you, President Trump. Well, yeah, well, I, I appreciate that, Kevin. I, I really do. And, um, you know, it's it's been quite the journey with this show. I mean, the fact that we're listening to in 24 different countries and on nearly 70 online platforms. It's surreal in a sense to me. I mean, I, I can't believe that in less than a two-year time frame, the, the amount of popularity that this show has gained, uh, and the to the you know to the to it's so it's it's just remarkable. I mean, it really really is, and words can't even describe it. And I and I thank everyone uh, for being a part of this uh, adventure with us. Um, let's get into the opening segment, shall we? You know, I. I get exhausted and extremely annoyed and irritated when the Democrats keep bringing up the Mueller investigation, the witch hunt, the no collusion. Like, like I said several times on this show, and I've said it over and over and over, this was never about finding justice. This was never about getting to the truth for the Democrats. This was never about anything other than abuse of power. Um, no, they knew all along that there was no collusion, but they knew they could push the narrative. They knew that it was, you know, credible enough in the liberal media, mainstream media, to push it. Because it was, it was a strong rumor and a, and a strong thing that got started on the left. And Hillary Clinton was obviously one of the people that started it. But after, after it was said so many times, and it was, the, the story was, you know, put out there, People, people, their voters started believing it. 
And then what happens? Obviously, the politicians push it because they don't want to upset their voters. You know, their voters' number one priority is impeaching Trump. You know, and, and then it's sad, and it's deranged, and it's delusional that they, that they think he's going to get impeached. What do these people not understand about almost a three-year investigation, well, about a two-year two investigation, well, over two years, into, they did it for over two years. Nothing found, hundreds and hundreds of people interviewed. The lead witness was a pedophile, and that just came out the other day. He's a child sex trafficking. Yeah, people testifying that are pathological liars like Michael Cohen with no credibility. And, and, and people want to take, take this stuff seriously. It's just like what I've said all along about the Democrats and the left. They care about feelings over facts, especially today's Democratic Party. Because I, you know, I used to love, you know, I, I love moderates. I think there's a lot of good moderates out there. I think there's a lot of good politicians that are right in the middle, but you know, it, it's, not as, it's not as common to find these days. I mean, you, you got a few of them. you got Joe Manchin. you got, surprisingly, Kristen Sinema from Arizona has turned out to be a pretty damn good moderate and actually sides with our president more than, more than our own Republican senator. I mean, but, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things where, going back to what I'm saying, I don't, want to go too, I don't want to get too far off topic, but they've gone so far to the left. They've gotten so evil. They have taken their power, abused it over and over. You know, they know they have control in the House. They know that they can, you know, keep leading their voters on and, and making them think that something is going to happen to Trump, but it never will. Trump's not going anywhere. I mean, this has been decided. And we all know this is just going to be political theater on Wednesday. The same questions are going to be asked. That we've already, the information that we already know. Think about it, though. Nobody has been charged. Hundreds of witnesses. And then, I mean, hundreds of interviews with, no, with nothing. They have nothing. These are, and, and don't forget, the people that were behind this investigation gave a bunch of money to Hillary Clinton and were affiliated with the Democrats. And then, and then the thing that bothers me the most and should bother anybody is the fact that they went into Donald Trump's personal life after they didn't find anything with Russia. They start trying to, you know, you know, abuse power in that way as well. And then they go after his family. And then they go and charge people with stuff that doesn't even relate to Russia. And I'm so sick of, you know, the Democrats in this witch hunt and, you know, this fishing expedition, you know, this is, this is really sick. This is, this is about as sick as it gets. It really is. And it doesn't end. It doesn't end. And, you know, they keep pushing this narrative. And they laugh. We all know the Democrats are laughing about this behind closed doors because they know there's no collusion. But they know they can get away with pushing this narrative. Dr. Branch, go ahead. Well, I think that you're right. I mean, this all along has just been, you know, trying to get the voters on the left to side with the left. You had Nadler on. You're cutting out. Well, I, yesterday you now seen Nadler on with Chris Wallace. 
you know, discussing yeah. this, saying yeah. that, well, you know, they were asking, well, why should Mueller testify? And he says, because the people need to hear in his own words how Trump colluded, because Trump has just been spinning this lie. But it's not true. I mean, if you read the report, he says specifically there was no collusion. Nobody in the United States, not just Trump, but nobody in the United States colluded. It's like, why is Nadler still allowed to spend taxpayer money on this witch hunt? And to me, yeah. you know, Mueller has already said he's not going to go beyond the report. And it's right. like, well, there's the report. Read the report. There is nothing there. And if there was, you better believe that back in March they would have, you know, started filing articles of impeachment. But they didn't. There was nothing there. It's just all theater. That's all it is. And the good news is if you look at all the polls and all the reports, the American people are just tired of this. You know, the majority of the people are saying right now enough is enough. And the Democrats, quite frankly, look foolish, keep pursuing this line. So, you know, to me, I'm going to follow what President Trump does on Wednesday. I don't even think I'm going to be tuning in. Oh. Yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things. And, you know, they're deranged enough to think that Mueller is going to – these are the voters think. I mean, it's going around social media that they are delusional enough, these voters, to think that, you know, something's going to happen to Trump. And there's like a hashtag trending saying Trump is terrified of Mueller. Terrified of what? There's nothing there. I mean, it's like it's a broken <laughs> record with these, with these people. I mean – what, the, what part of no collusion in, in almost a, over a two-year investigation do these people not understand? It's ridiculous. It really is ridiculous. Um, Kevin, well, and I Kevin, think go with ahead. Re- oh, well, go ahead, Dr. Branch. I was just going to say, but I think that when the, the uh, Republicans have their opportunity to chime in, their five minutes, each one of them, they're going to ask Mueller tough questions that is mm-hmm. not in the report. Like, when did you discover collusion? Was it towards the end of 2017? If so, why did you go another 15 months investigating this if you knew there was no collusion? So I think these are really going to be tough questions, and I think it's going to be an embarrassment, actually, for um, the Democrats. Of course, they don't care. They're they're a party that just doesn't care. I mean, so they don't care if they're embarrassed. Uh, they'll just yeah. lie about it, you know, as soon as it comes out. So, yeah, that's true. It's true. Uh, I wanted to play what President Trump said earlier today, and then we'll go to Kevin. Uh, one four. No, I'm not going to be watching. Probably, maybe I'll see a little bit of it. I'm not going to be wa- watching Mueller uh, because uh, you can't take all those bites out of the apple. We had uh, no collusion, no obstruction. We had no nothing. We had uh, a total no collusion finding. The Democrats were devastated by it. They went crazy. They've gone off the deep end. They're not doing anything. They're not doing health care. They're not doing uh, infrastructure. They're not lowering drug prices. I'm lowering drug prices. First time in 53 years that drug prices went down last year. 53 years. And I'm doing that without the help of Congress, which makes it much tougher to do. Because if they worked with us, I could get drug prices down in half. But the Democrats don't seem to care about drug prices. All they care about is a phony investigation where the report was written. It said no collusion. 
The report was written, and the Attorney General, based on the report, was easily able to find there was no obstruction. Uh, there's no nothing. They're wasting their time. Uh, and Robert Mueller, I know he's conflicted. He had a lot, there's a lot of conflicts that he's got, including the fact that his best friend is Comey. But he's got conflicts with me, too. He's got big conflicts with me. As you know, he wanted the job of the FBI director. He didn't get it. And we had a business uh, relationship where I said no. And uh, I would say that he wasn't happy. Then all of a sudden, he gets this position. But you know what? He still ruled, and I respect him for it. He still ruled. No collusion, no obstruction. And uh, this thing should have ended a long time ago. This has been going on for two and a half years. And we're never going to allow this to happen to another president again, because most of them wouldn't be able to take it. On top of everything else, we have the strongest economy. We were just discussing this with the prime minister. We have the strongest economy that the United States has ever had. We have the highest stock market yesterday, literally, the highest stock market we've ever had on Friday, Thursday. Uh, we've broken the record, I think, 109 times for our highest stock market. But on, I believe, Thursday of last week, we hit the all-time highest in the history of our country. Our country is doing phenomenally well. Unemployment is the lowest in 51 years, soon to be the lowest in history, if it keeps going this way in a short period of time. Black. Hispanic, Asian, unemployment, the lowest in history. Women, the lowest in 72 years. Uh, nobody has ever done what we've done. Nobody's done in two and a half years what we've done. The biggest tax cuts in history, the biggest regulation cuts in history, uh, so many things for health care. We got rid of the individual mandate, which was the worst part of Obamacare. And what it would end up, if we end up winning the House back, we keep the presidency. We should keep the Senate. We should keep the presidency. I would think easy when you have the strongest economy in the history of our country and somebody's going to run against that particular president, even though in this case it's me. In theory, I have a big advantage. I don't know. I'm going to have to ask you. But in theory, I have a big advantage. So a lot of great things are happening. But the Democrats, they don't want to talk about that. They want to stay off the economy subject. Uh, and what they're doing is just hearing after hearing after hearing. It's nonsense, okay? They tried an impeachment vote, and they got slaughtered last week. They got absolutely slaughtered. It was the most ridiculous. I didn't even know they were going to do it. And I'll tell you, just in finishing, I have a lot of respect for the Democrats, because most, most of them voted against impeachment last week. And I have a lot of respect for those Democrats that did that, because they're doing the right thing for the country. No collusion. No obstruction. Let's go. You know, hold on one second. I just want to say before we go to Kevin, you know, at least, like I said many times on the show, at least the Democratic Party, even though I was, I've always leaned way more Republican, you know, and I've always said I'm about 85 to 90% Republican. There's a few things that I, I agree with the Democrats on, but very few. That's why I said I'm about 90% Republican. But I, I will say, even though, I, like I said, I, was, I, I never agreed – I never really agreed with any of their policies except maybe one or two, but at least they used to be a party of substance and some sort of, you know uh, – they, they used to, you know, focus on policy. They used to actually care about their constituents. I mean, I, I feel like it. At, you know, some of them at one point, but now it's just constant hostility. It's constant hate. It's constant ignorance. It's constant – you know, arrogance as well. I mean, these people are just animals. These people are disgusting. Uh, Kevin, go ahead. 
Yes, you're both completely correct about this whole case, and especially Donald Trump is correct about all of this. I mean, you have a complete uh, belligerent uh, and these infamous eight angry Democrats that have initiated this whole campaign against Trump and the impeachment. They believe that they are so above the law that they are completely immune from any persecution. And I think it's because they have nothing else to lose. I mean, what we see with President Trump is he's breaking records left and right all over the place. I mean, all-time records. Uh, you can't even count them. There's, there's so many. And it's telling, too, that he is absolutely you know, putting uh, historic amounts of pedophiles in prison. These sex rings are being locked up and charged, and uh, it's an elitist agenda as well. And you have many of these elitists and these political class uh, individuals that are, you know, they're threatened. They feel like they could possibly go to prison. So why would they be so against Donald Trump's uh, actions? Uh, well, I think this is a big reason why. So, you know, they think that they're so above the law, and this is why, because a regular person would be charged and put away, like, very quickly. Um, but these elitists, they don't understand that, you know, the rule of law and justice it has to do with uh, concepts like no double jeopardy. You cannot, you know, charge Trump over and over and over again for the same thing. You have all these different indictments and reports. I mean, uh, how many times do we have to see, you know, in this case, a 448-page report about this whole Russian collusion BS narrative and for it to ultimately say, you know, nothing happened and there's, there's no collusion whatsoever? And we're just documenting, you know, everything that we're doing, and it's it's led to absolutely nothing. And not only has he been double, triple, quadruple, you know, charged, but even the Democrats, you know, Nancy Pelosi, they they, they understand that this is a losing strategy. It's, it's hurting them in the long run. And this is going in the history books as a complete failed flop attempt at trying to impeach a, a sitting president that has has not uh, committed any any violations. And it's, it's very telling too. Uh, overall that not only is it the case where uh, they're breaking the law by double jeopardy, but especially through uh, convicting and charging, trying to uh, charge a president with a crime that he didn't commit. It's like if I had tried to um, say that someone had raped me and they hadn't, or if I said someone killed someone else and they completely hadn't, or, you know, you're, or, you know, you're shouting fire or gunmen or in the theater, you know, you're putting tons of people in danger by your actions and you're committing false reports. These are absolute terrible crimes, and everyone in America and essentially the world is somehow being affected by this whole scenario. It, it's criminal to the highest degree, and you know, there will be consequences, especially if Trump gets elected again. And it's all the more reason why we need to continue getting him in to, into his uh, 2020 election. And it's, uh, it's criminal all around, and I think that uh, ultimately that all these uh, individuals that have been uh, – trying to prosecute Trump, it's absolutely going to blow up in their face, and we're seeing it play out in real time. What do you think, Man, Rory, my man, Rory, it is good to see you, brother. We are going to be playing some basketball tomorrow, I believe. I just picked up a good Spalding ball. 
Now, Oregon, I remember was at this salute to America event. It was so crazy, guys. You're not even going to believe this. We couldn't even find each other. That's how crazy it was there. It's so good to be back. It's good to hear Kevin's voice. I echo all of that, all of his sentiments. It is quite remarkable what the Democrats are doing, but I think my message is bring it on because the more that they throw at this, I think the better it makes Trump look, and I think the more momentum it gives us going into that 2020 election. So excited to be back. I can tell you guys Rory's actually more handsome in person than you would think from the videos. And uh, this is going to be a great time, guys. So we'll check in with you later. Take care. It, it really is great to have Daryl uh, in the studio. I, I will say it, uh, it, it is it's very, very awesome. Uh, I will. We will be going to commercial. We'll come right back with Christine Douglas Williams. We are very excited to talk to her. Uh, we'll be right back, everybody. Stay with us. TGI Friday's famous sizzling entrees that you know and love like chicken, shrimp, and cheese just got even hotter. New delicious tastes like whiskey, flat iron steak, and the tastiest sizzling street foods. Hurry in. Now starting at only $10. We bring the sizzle like no other. New sizzling entrees starting at $10. TGI Friday's, the home of endless apps. Endless apps every night, 9 p.m. to close. She's still the one for you. And Cialis for Daily Use helps you be ready any time the moment is right. Cialis is also the only daily ED tablet approved to treat symptoms of BPH, like needing to go frequently. Tell your doctor about all your medical conditions and medicines and ask if your heart is healthy enough for sex. Do not take Cialis if you take nitrates for chest pain as it may cause an unsafe drop in blood pressure. Do not drink alcohol in excess. Side effects may include headache, upset stomach, delayed backache, or muscle ache. To avoid long-term injury, get medical help right away for an erection lasting more than four hours. If you have any sudden decrease or loss in hearing or vision or any allergic reactions like rash, hives, swelling of the lips, tongue, or throat, or difficulty breathing or swallowing, stop taking Cialis and get medical help right away. Ask your doctor about Cialis for daily use and a free 30-tablet trial. Packaging. I'm Ray, and I quit smoking with Chantix. I tried cold turkey. I tried the patch. They didn't work for me. I didn't think anything was going to work for me until I tried Chantix. Chantix, along with support, helps you quit smoking. Chantix reduced my urge to smoke. I needed that to quit. When you try to quit smoking, with or without Chantix, you may have nicotine withdrawal symptoms. Some people had changes in behavior or thinking, aggression, hostility, agitation, depressed mood, or suicidal thoughts or actions with Chantix. Serious side effects may include seizures, new or worse heart or blood vessel problems, sleepwalking, or allergic and skin reactions, which can be life-threatening. Stop Chantix and get help right away if you have any of these. Tell your health care provider if you've had depression or other mental health problems. Decrease alcohol use while taking Chantix. Use caution when driving or operating machinery. The most common side effect is nausea. I can't tell you how good it feels to have smoke behind me. Talk to your doctor about Chantix. And we are back coast to coast worldwide. Listen to in 24 different countries on nearly 70 online platforms. And everybody, if you miss any past clips, past episodes, or any 24-7 breaking news coverage, visit my media site, the next, N-E-X, Gen, G-E-N, USA, dot com. And also remember, in about a month, we will be releasing our brand new 24-7 media network that we're raising a lot of money for. And uh, we will be having Sheriff Joe Arpaio, America's toughest sheriff, as the face 
of the network, which we're really excited about. And uh, we also um, have definitely a lot uh, of uh, people doing shows. I mean, we have now about 85% to 90% of the slots filled up with notable names. Uh, and we can't wait. We really can't wait, people. Uh, I do want to welcome to the show. Uh, we have Islam historian, activist, nine-time international award-winning journalist, television producer, and best-selling author, Christine Douglas-Williams. How are you? Welcome back to the show. Great to be back, Rory. Well, it's great to have you here. Um, obviously, there's a lot to get to, but first I want to ask you, what have you been up to? What's What's been going on lately? Any new projects? A lot, a lot of writing for Jihad Watch, and as you probably know, I'm also an editor for Front Page Magazine. I'm involved in a lot of different projects, the International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem, Canada, a new organization called Canadians for the Rule of Law. I'm on their board of directors as well. So I've been keeping quite busy, and of course, there's the family. Absolutely. Well, um, I love it. I love it, and you're, you're, you're a very talented, intelligent woman. I mean, you've been a great activist and, and fighter uh, for for what's right for a long time, and I, and I really appreciate that, and so so do so many other people. Um, I, I, I do want to ask you, you know, for, first topic I want to ask you about is what, what do you make of this whole situation with Iran, you know, that now they've seized about, uh, I think, two ships that, that belong to Britain. Uh, they tried to, you know, we saw the whole drone incident last week. What, what do you think about all this? I mean, where do you think it's going to go? Yes, they did. And let's, and let's not forget, too, the two oil tankers, the Japanese and Norwegian oil tankers go. that there they attacked. Yep. Um, Iran is desperate. I mean, I, the world knows. Um, for a long time, it's been actually desperate. If one goes back a bit, you'll realize that with Iran, they have a dream of a revived um, Persian empire. They're an egotistical nation. Um, people tend to see them as being a rogue nation that's just capable of being plain erratic. But the problem is they're also a doomsday cult of a nation. They believe in this eschatological view of religion that there must be catastrophe, there must be mass death before the 12th imam shows himself. And Iran is the kind of a nation that will attempt to usher that in. To what degree? That is what's rather scary. Now, what's going on with Iran now? There's a lot of divisions, actually. I'll start from most recent work back. For example, Trump said that most recently that this is a nation that doesn't know what they're doing. We're waiting and seeing because behind closed doors they talked about negotiating with America, of all people. We didn't think that, but apparently they came out and said it behind closed doors, and that was one of Trump's tweets recently. But it was being met with, oh, Trump is making it up because he's made such a big mess with Iran. Trump is actually controlling Iran rather well because, first of all, that is a nation that never could have been trusted to begin with. I don't know what Obama or other nations were even thinking by appeasing Iran and signing that nuclear deal. Most people by now know about Takiyah, the concept of Takiyah in Islam, which is a command, not just lying to infidels, but a command to lie to infidels to promote the religion of Islam. Now, one needs to understand that Iran is a very important nation when it comes to the Shia faith. It is the home of what is called the Marja. This is the Ayatollah Khamenei. The only higher forces than the Marja 
is actually the Quran itself and the 12th Imam. So he is a very enlightened, powerful leader in the Shia faith. So when one considers this, and Iran is the home to the Marja, we have something very significant here. Now, Iran thought they had the world around its finger with that nuclear deal. Along comes Trump to say, enough, we don't believe you, you have not been straight with us. Netanyahu comes out and shows that there has been proof that they have not been true to the deal, which they should not have ex- it should not have been expected that they will be. They are liars. So, because of Trump's sanctions now, Iran is very angry, and it is desperate. It is getting poorer and poorer. It is suffering um, upheavals within its own nation, rebellion from its own people. Nobody even knows the extent of perhaps that rebellion because they quash it. They fa- people face imprisonment, death for turning against the regime. And there is – we talk about media blackouts in the West. Well, for goodness sakes. If you look at a nation like Iran, there is no freedom of the press at all. So we really don't know the extent of what's going on in Iran, but we do know it's a big mess economically. It's a big mess when it comes to the people, because by and large, the people of Iran hate their nation, and money-wise, it's going down the toilet. So it's in a very desperate position. So what's it left to do? It's left to find allies in the Islamic world. And when you look at people like Turkey, unfortunately, after that um, attack on the tankers, China and Russia, and Russia declared solidarity with Iran after that Gulf tanker attack, which was very unnerving. But when one looks even closer, you're looking at a lot of economics involved. So one doesn't know exactly how deep China and Russia's allegiance is to Iran. Yes, they have deals when it comes to economics, but with Iran, one needs to remember, and this is the, the biggest comforting fact, Donald Trump has threatened that if Iran does anything like strike America, um, make one move that will be a threat to the West, he will strike back with a ferocity. And he has been very clear about that. When one looks at the might of the military of the United States, Iran is not a nation that can match that. Within the space of a few weeks from what, if, if, you, if you study this on the Internet, if you look into it, it would not take long to wipe out the entire navy of Iran. And you're also looking at the, tech, the technologies of, um, of Israel, who was threatened by Iran. So Iran is, a, is, is in a rather precarious position. It is a wait and see, according to what Donald Trump is saying, given the nations that may be supporting it tacitly, but still, there is a lot of hesitation because you're also dealing with Saudi Arabia, who has made friends with the United States. So it doesn't look good at this point whatsoever with Iran. Nobody wants a war with Iran. Yes, there are some threats because you do look at um, what Tucker Carlson did recently and he really went after what he calls the Washington Hawks and he specifically went after John Bolton that he says it's too eager for a war with Iran. But According to what the military might of America is, America clearly does not want death, civilian deaths. Donald Trump made that clear, but it is really no match. So from that point of view, Iran is rather desperate. It's looking for friendships, but the Arab world right now is a mess. So from the point of view of its capabilities, its mouth is much bigger than its capabilities, according to knowledge. Right. And now let me ask you this. What do you think about Iran you know, trying to stir the pot and say that they captured, you know, uh, some of our CIA uh, people and, 
And Trump said today that that's totally false. I mean, do you think this is just Iran spreading propaganda like they usually do for attention? Iran is professional at spreading propaganda. With that said, when somebody is a known liar, one day they could come out with the truth. So it is good to listen to what is coming out of Iran, but one must not take it seriously because Iran has a history of telling lies. One needs to look right. at Iran. Now, I know that people will say, look, you know, America is no holy roller. It has its sins. Well, yes, America has its sins. But how many of the loudmouths there that are defending Iran, defending the Islamic world, defending this, this squad are willing to live in these countries? And there's a reason right. why people with their loud mouths that like to condemn are not running to live in those countries, whereas those people that live in these countries are running to live in America. America is a great nation. It has been the police, yes. unfortunately, when it comes to the guardian of democracy, when other nations have just piggybacked off America. And I shouldn't say exclusively, because we have a tendency now to look at what's going on with Europe, with Canada. But let's, not, let's remember, World War II, Canada did great things. Historically, the French did great things. But America of recent times have been the ones standing up and saying, look, we intend to do something here. We intend to stand up and make America great again. And because of that model that America has served, we have the Visegrad group, basically led by the, the Hungarian leader, Viktor Orban, that said, look, he wants to follow Donald Trump and make Hungary great again. So you're seeing the rise right. of the populist movement. But going back to your question about Iran and believing Iran, I would say it's a good idea to listen to what's coming out of that nation, make sense of it, do research, but for goodness sake, yeah. understand that it is a historic liar of a regime. Right. And what, you know, I, I want to ask you, what do you think, you know, President Trump said the other day, and I quote, he, back, well, he, he said Iran is in big trouble and that he's backing Britain. I mean, how do you see this thing escalating? Where do you think it's – what do you think is going to happen? Uh, what are your thoughts? I would say it all depends on Iran. I, I, I hate to put it this way, but right now Donald Trump is treating Iran like a child. We'll see what you do. And based on what you do, we will respond. When they attack those tankers, they have been pulling some stunts. And I believe what they're doing right now, they're, they're criticizing Britain. They're lashing out at the EU. They're all over the map right now. But basically what Donald Trump has chosen to do, and he's been very clear, is watch and see what Iran chooses to do. Iran right now is scared. What it's trying to do right now as a last-ditch effort is continue its propaganda and stir up other nations against the United States. And it's not having a whole lot of luck because, let's face it, America has had quite a few enemies for some time. And right now we look at these enemies and where are they? The, the, the one right now that is calling the shots, despite his attackers, is Donald Trump, because Iran is right. clearly scared. If Iran was almighty like it pretended to be, it would have already made a move, but it has not because it's afraid to do so. There is, not, there is no solidarity among the leaders in Iran. There are some that are saying, yes, we're going to go ahead and, and attack Israel. We're going to attack the West. We're going to do this and that. And recently, in fact, today it came out in the news that it's um, it, it's it's so-called foreign affairs in Iran said they're building tighter um, bonds with Hamas more and more because simply because of the enemies 
of Islam. And, but, but what's new? I mean, you've got Hezbollah that's a proxy of Iran. We know what Hezbollah does. We know what Hamas does, what the PA does. They're all of one accord, and it is under the umbrella of Islam. Many call it Islamism, but let's face it, normative Islam is Islamism, and it's had a, a goal, a 1,400-year goal, and that goal is continuing. But today what is going on is that Iran's back is against the wall. It is suffering. And it does not know what to do. It's like a cornered cat, but we could expect it to do anything. Because right now, there are those that are saying, it, it, it's very interesting. In fact, let me back up a minute here. When Donald Trump decided not to strike it, like he said he would do over those tankers, there were those that are constantly accusing Donald Trump of being too bullish. Meanwhile, after he decided not to do it, they're accusing him of not striking. No matter what Donald Trump does, they're going to attack him anyway, even when it comes to the illegal immigrants storming the United States. Way back in the day, we know full well that there were many Democrats now accusing Trump that were hollering in the day, we have to crack down on illegal immigration. So no matter what Trump does, he's going to get attacked. But Iran now, I don't see Iran really following through with its threats. It's afraid. It's in a position where it does not have solidarity among its own leaders, and it knows full well that it's dealing with Israel and it's dealing with American might. That is a problem for Iran. However, with that said, nobody knows what they might do, because I did mention earlier that they do have this religious belief of creating catastrophe. And in so doing, one does not know what they could do. But they are being treated right now by Donald Trump like a child. Let's wait and see what they will do. And based on what they do after they're kicking and screaming, we will respond as a nation. Very, very well said. You're always spot on. You're always perfect in everything you say. And uh, so, so insightful. Um, absolutely. I do want to shift gears a little bit. And I want to ask you, because I know you write about, you know, especially Omar, quite a, you have before quite a bit, and, you know, what, the, what these women, dangerous women are doing in Congress, especially Omar and, you know, uh, Tlaib and, what what are your thoughts on the squad? I mean, what the, what they're doing? I mean, at every single at every you know opportunity they get, uh, every term, it seems like they're dissing the American people. They're dissing our traditions. They're dissing our values, and they have no shame in doing it. And we've even seen seen them side with with terrorists and people like Al Qaeda and ISIS. It's pretty it's pretty messed up. And you know the the statement that Omar made about nine eleven, just how insensitive. I mean, just everything they've done, I mean, they're a disgrace, and uh, I'm just, I'm tired of it, you know, and they get coddled by the media. The difficulty that we face here is there's a history of racism. You'll know that I was an appointee by the Privy Council with the Canadian Race Relations Foundation in Canada, and I was subsequently dismissed from that board because of my writings for Jihad Watch, and I tell about it in my second book, um, fired by the government of Canada for criticizing Islam, Multicultural Canada, a weak link in the battle against Islamization. So I certainly understand the whole notion and the issues of racism. Now I'm going to go back a bit here before I, I delve into what's going on with these women, because what they're doing is mixing some truth with um, maybe a small, you know, they say a drop uh, of poison can, cont- I mean, you take 
one drop of poison, you put it into a drink, you can contaminate that whole drink and kill a person. And this is what they're doing. They have, in, in their case, it, it's a tiny bit of truth. And they're basing their truth on a history of America with slavery based on a history of Europe. They're basing it on history. They're, they're talking about racism today as if it was in the 60s. America has become a model nation. The West have become model nations. If the West had not become model nations, they wouldn't be opening up their big mouth and they would not have been elected in the first place. The problem is you've got people living in the past. I am not saying for one minute that racism doesn't exist, but these gals are fooling people. They're bringing people back into the day where whites were the ones to be demonized, to be called racist, and they're still doing it today. They won't even recognize a very major problem about racism that goes on among groups of visible minorities. For instance, you've got black slaves being held in Mauritania. You've got black slaves being held in Sudan and in Algeria. But nobody talks about these things. You've got Afghans sitting in the back of the bus in Iran. You've got racism galore, but these women are not talking about it. They're taking advantage of Americans, and one has to ask, do they believe what they're actually saying? I can't say I do, but you zeroed in specifically on Ilhan Omar. I don't believe for a minute she believes what she's saying. This woman has been raising funds with groups like CARE, for goodness sakes. CARE is an unindicted co-conspirator to jihad terror, and this is the kind of group that she has affiliated herself with. Now, when one starts to tie up with a group like that, and she also spoke at an Islamic relief event for aiding Yemen, this woman, through the core, is not supportive of Israel. In fact, she proposed a resolution supporting BDS against Israel. The whole BDS is part of the jihadist plan to delegitimize Israel with the goal to obliterate it. I don't know how much information is out there. It is endless. Why people won't do their research, I can't understand it. The, the Palestinian Authority Charter, the Hamas Charter, in fact, the PLO Charter as well, they all have the goal of obliterating Israel. If you go back in history, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem worked with Hitler to obliterate Israel. That same Grand Mufti led the Arab revolt. It is no secret what the Palestinian cause is really about. And when you look at Ilhan Omar leading this BDS, raising funds for Hamas-linked care, talking about it's all about the Benjamin's baby, referring to the financial contributions of the Israel lobby, this woman is disgusting. She called Carlson a racist fool, and she plays the identity politics just because he was blasting her for constant criticism of the U.S. She was a refugee here from Somalia. Now, rumors are going around, and, and I don't, I, I, I'm hesitant to even call it rumors because um, I don't see enough um, proof yet. But according to what has been going around in the media, her father was, served the Somali terrorist regime before she finally escaped with a fake name Omar, and she also married her brother. Now, these things are still floating around in the media, and people are saying it's true. I can't say so right now whether it's 100% true, but it's very clear what Ilhan Omar represents. She's very anti-American. She's anti-Jewish. She supports BDS. She has no right in Congress, and I believe, based on the, the level of involvement 
that she is engaged in, the kinds of organizations, she knows exactly what she's doing, and she's playing right. the American public, and she's playing the far left. Very well said. And the, I was laughing at the whole brother thing because it's so appalling and disgusting. Um, but I do want to ask you, you know, uh, I do want to ask you another question, and then I want to obviously get some questions from the panel. I know a lot of my co-hosts have questions for you. But I want to ask you, what, what do you think about the environment and the society that's in London, uh, you know, with Saudi Khan running this, uh, the, the city of London. I mean, he's probably one of the worst mayors ever in the entire world. Uh, you have constant Muslims, Muslims invading, you know, that city constantly, and they're pretty much outdoing the, their own citizens in terms of in terms of population. I think what I read is they're not too far off from being the majority, especially because how how often and how you know how con- how Regular, they're letting these people in. They're letting these people in like it's like it's nothing. I mean, it's it's over and over. And there's millions of them. I mean, you know, and I I worry that this could turn into to the United States if we're not careful. I mean, it, you know, once once Trump is done in, in in six years, you know, when his eight year term is up, I worry that you know some Democrat may win and something like this could happen. And we see what's going on in London with the gun control, and now knife control. You can't have knives. Um, and all this stuff. I mean, how the hell are people supposed to protect themselves? And I mean, this is, this is, pure, this is pure communism tactics. You know, leave, leave the good it guys. Is, it is something. What you're talking about there is a concept called the red-green axis. You've got, these, um, you've got a, an alliance between the communist type and the Islamist type. Now, with what you're saying about London, there's a knife crime epidemic going on in that in that um, in that location in London, and acid yeah. attacks. In fact, it's so bad in that place that 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 they have London gangs that's called the Mali Boys. They're organized. They're ruthless. They're they're now um, working with the drug cartels. And this is another problem that we're seeing that is terribly frightening. That we're seeing more and more of a, of an alliance between jihadists and crime gangs because that is how they raise money for jihad. This is what's happening in London. It's, in fact, it's so bad that Somali parents have been, I mean, I shouldn't be laughing at the absurdity of this, have been sending their children back to Somalia to save them from the knife crime in London. This is how bad London is under Sadiq Khan. And if you trace his history, like Ilhan Omar, in fact, maybe even worse, or at least the same, he can be traced back to the worst jihadist groups and saying the worst things against Israel, against America, against the West. This is the kind of thing going on, and you're absolutely right to be fearful, because when Donald Trump's term is up, if we end up with a globalist or somebody like that, I, it, it, the thought of what could happen, it could be pretty much the same as what we see going on in, in certain spots in Europe. It, it, you're very right. It, there are reasons to be, reasons to be and, afraid and or Canada, concerned. Right? I mean, you guys have a lot of them up there, don't you? We have a lot up here, and, and the Trudeau government is very open to them. I mean, right now, the biggest thing going is M103 that aims to shut down free speech, and there are those that try to say, oh, it's a paranoia, it is not a Sharia imperative. Yes, it is. If one follows the documents, because a lot of the journalists here aren't doing their homework, there was a written document, a follow-up to M103, that, w- that aimed to monitor citizens for compliance. 
that that has a whole plan to be shutting down free speech, to be going after right. internet speech. This is what's going yeah. on in Canada, and this was put yeah. forward by by um, our own um, the, the MP here, who is from Pakistan, and and she proposes M103. It was taken, and if one follows, I've written up extensively about this on on, on Jihad Watch, and if if you trace the involvement. Of, of M103 and those who introduced it in Parliament, you will see that they too are all linked, very much like Ilhan Omar and Tlaib. They're linked to jihadist organizations, which are linked up to Hamas. We have the same problem going on here in Canada, except we don't have any Donald Trump, and that is what a pro- that's, that's the problem that we're facing here. And we have a media that's trying to say, oh, we're being paranoid to talk about Sharia law in Canada, because there are those that say, well, M103 it's not legislation, but it was a motion in Parliament passed by that was introduced by this Ikra Khalid. It passed in, in Parliament. The Conservatives were completely against it. It was only two Conservative members that, that voted for it, but the NDP, the New Democratic Party, as well as the Liberal, all the Liberal, the Liberal members, they voted for it, and it passed. And when one passes a motion in Parliament, it serves as a document to direct future legislation. And because it passed, they put it toward this $27 million, this $23 million document where Islamophobia, Motion M103, is included in it to start cracking down on free speech in Canada. So it is very much this, the Sharia imperative. Yes, you cannot say Canada is under Sharia law, but we certainly are being threatened by it under M103. And the fact that Trudeau sent Al-Gabra, who was an Islamic MP, also to the 44th session of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation um, meeting. Why was Canada attending a, na- a meeting that was intended for the Organization of Islamic Cooperation na- Nations? Canada had no reason to be there, and Canada has long sought to reopen negotiations with Iran. Johari is another member of parliament that has been lobbying the government to reopen negotiations with Iran, and in fact to open the embassy, open back the embassy in Ottawa that was shut down by the Harper government because it was thoroughly infiltrated, and it, it was it was it became a place where its proxies were working against Canadians, infiltrating us with ambitions to attack the United States, according to reports. So we have a big problem here in Canada under Justin Trudeau, who also believes in open immigration, and now the immigration minister, who is a Somalian Muslim, came here as a refugee, and now he wants to open the door wide. He's even talking now about, about bringing in um, economic migrants. And in fact, just a, a week ago, there's a, a, a family, a Christian family in Windsor, Ontario, that is being given a hard time and facing deportation because they want to send them back to Nigeria, of all places, saying, oh, the area that they live in, it is not threatened. This is the kind of thing that's going on in Canada now. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it really is uh, insanity. Uh, Daryl, Daryl, go ahead. Well, first off, I want to thank your guest for all of the tremendous work that she does and, and also the tremendous insight that you've brought to the program tonight. So God bless you for that. Um, some really important topics came up. I, I've said many times that London Mayor Sadiq Khan represents a far greater threat to Western civilization than uh, Iranian Ayatollah Khamenei. And I mean that, and that's not to, that's not to undercut the, the serious threat posed by Iran, but 
We've touched on the topic of immigration and the deep concerns specifically that come from Islamic immigration. The fact that London, the center of the British Empire, by a democratic system elected a radical Islamist should should really send a chill down every Western citizen's spine. And this is something that we need to take very seriously. And the, the issues with immigration, we have this very lovely system, our democracies, our liberal democracy. We're dealing with an, an enemy on the left that has exposed a fundamental weakness in this system. And they're exploiting it by importing people from all across the world and essentially paying them and incentivizing for them to vote against the interests of the citizens of our own host nations. And what we have now with Islamic immigration is a, an even greater threat because they represent such a strong ideology and an ideology that is fundamentally inconsistent with Western civilization. And we, we, we come into some very difficult questions that almost force us to choose between our liberal democracies and our own civilizations the longer that we allow these immigration concerns to go unchecked. What do you do in a liberal democracy when you wake up one day and uh, Islam is the national majority? What do you do at that point? And these are questions that are not so hypothetical in places like France, Germany, not that far behind. This is particularly in Europe. They're going to be forced to make some very tough decisions, and they're going to have to do them soon. It is very good that the United States has elected a populist in Trump. Uh, That is not a fix-all on this, but again, the sooner that you get on the right page, the better of a chance you have to resolve these issues in a peaceful way. I have many good friends. Actually, I was just speaking down at Freedom Fest, and a good friend of mine came down all the way from Calgary, Alberta, and the concerns that you guys have there with, with Prime Minister Trudeau you're dealing with all of these same concerns, but as you as you rightly pointed out, without having at least some resistance in the leadership. But the problem is is so serious because obviously the media is so entrenched in this. Even with President Trump, even when we had control of all three branches of government, it still felt like that many times we were the opposition party. So even having Trump in is, is really just the beginning. It's it's not so much the end. These are very serious problems that we need to address, and I just want to applaud your guests for coming on and, and providing such terrific insight and emphasizing the importance of these topics, and please keep doing what you're doing, and uh, I'll give you a chance to respond to anything in there that seemed of interest to you, but not so much a question. just wanted to thank you and encourage you to keep doing what you're doing, and a real p- uh, pleasure and a privilege to be on the program with you tonight. Well, thank you so much. Something does stand out in what you say. What happens one day when you wake up and realize you've been taken over? That question is actually the answer. You wake up and you're taken over. You, 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 you're subject to dimitude. So you live as they do in Islamic countries. If you're not a Muslim, you have inferior status, you pay the jizya tax, you're right back into the days of the Ottoman Empire, where you have to obey Islamic law, you have to obey the Sharia law, pay the jizya in, will, in humiliation according to the dictates of the Quran. This is how you'll be living. And what's going on in the West here is 
a great movement toward that direction. It's so bad that the Dalai Lama, who is known as a figure of world peace, came out within the last month and said that Europe must stop immigration if Europe wants to remain being Europe, because it will become Muslim or African. This is what the Dalai Lama came out and warned about. We're seeing now, there's a Cardinal Sarah, a black man that came out and said, look, the religion being used in the Catholic Church, we see the Pope doing it, that is using religion and saying, Christ welcomed the stranger, welcomed those who are suffering, we have to open our doors. These kinds of people are totally crazy, and I think we need to call them out for being either stupid or crazy, completely crazy, and none are flattering. Crazy means they need help, they need treatment. Stupid means they need education. I cannot understand how anybody could actually come out with these statements and people would even listen to them. For goodness sakes, everybody knows by now that Western nations are made of immigrants, but they should also realize that immigration is a two-way street. When somebody comes into your house, they need to live by house rules. They need to give as well as take. But it is a feedback loop, giving and taking. How many people that are open to this open-door immigration are willing to open their own front door to their house and let in anybody into their house? If you suggest that to anybody, they will look at you as if you have two heads, and they should. So why are they willing to do the same to Western countries? I cannot understand that kind of reasoning. It is crazy or stupid, I say. And this is something that we need to be getting out there, not accepting that kind of reasoning, because there are those that have an agenda, and the agenda is between Islam, normative Islam, and communism. And both of those agendas at the highest level aims to completely destroy democracy. Now, David Horowitz, who runs the David Horowitz Freedom Center, because Jihad Watch is a project of the Horowitz Center, and so is Front Page Magazine, both of which I'm connected with. He has written a book specifically talking about Christian America. It is excellent, because it talks specifically about how you have these forces that are specifically attacking Christian America. Now, when one looks at Christian America, it is the full scripture, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and there are those that want to say, oh, it's not based on religion. America is not created on religion, but it is. Where do these kinds of people think that the human rights came from? Mankind and womankind, lest I be stoned, was created in the image of God. Now, that makes them equal. Whether you're a man, you're a woman, whatever race you're at, you are, you are deemed to be created in the image of God. You are equal, and you're deemed to be precious by way of your humanity. That came from from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this is what democracy is based on, equality and human rights. It's based on the laws of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, and so forth. Now, this is what we're based on, human rights. You've got these people coming into this country. What do people think are going to happen besides what the Dalai Lama warned? It's going to end up another Africa or another Muslim country. It is inevitable because whoever your household consists of, that is who you are. 
Now, let's suppose you have a household that is made up of five people, and they're all maximum security. Um, they were all in the maximum security penitentiaries. They committed murders, and they were not reformed. Well, that household, we know what that household is going to look like. Now, I'm not saying for a minute that all immigrants coming into the country are a bunch of mass murderers or rapists. I'm not saying that at all. But we have been infiltrated, the refugee streams, by ISIS, by Boko Haram, by every jihadist force you see out there. It has infiltrated through open doors. This is what has happened. We are calling for, on, on the populist side, nobody has said anything about not being welcoming, about not helping, about closing the door to all immigration, but for goodness sakes, be responsible. Right now, imagine that. In France, there was a storming of a historic building by, by, by hundreds, 700 Africans. You have a situation going on in Libya where the Libyan leader recently said, we have 800,000 people that are going to flood into Europe. And this Libyan leader is demanding that the EU take them or else. Or else what? Right now, we have emboldened Islamic supremacists to such a degree that they think yep. it is their right to walk into European yep. nations because we are nothing but the house of war to these people. Yep. And they've been emboldened by Marxists and the far left. They're the ones to blame because jihadists yep. already spelled out the Muslim Brotherhood right. a long time ago. There's a 14-year history, so come on. It is leftists and Marxists to blame for what we're seeing here now with the open doors yep. and in the infiltration of our societies. Absolutely. Very well said. Kevin, go ahead. We have a, we have a few wow, minutes and we have a commercial, but go ahead. Oh. oh, yes. It's such an honor and a pleasure to speak with you. I completely agree with you about all your views about uh, the Democratic Party and their their racialism, their complete ignorance about how the rest of the world works, especially these Islamic countries, these North African countries that are under the slave trade. Uh, if they only went back there and understood what it was, what it's really like, and relate that information back to America, that would go a long way. But of course, they they don't want to do that. But uh, I think what's even more fascinating of a topic is uh, Iran, because I mean, this is this is huge. Iran is causing massive tensions with with America and the entire, you know, Western nations to begin with. I mean, um, from when uh, they took down an, a U.S. drone that was flying in Iranian space, that was bad. Uh, when there was also the uh, oil tankers, of course, that were seized uh, in response to Iran seizing uh, the British tanker earlier in the month. There's also, um, uh, yeah, there's all these uh, sanctions tensions going on. So I, I just personally want to ask you, um, uh, first of all, uh, do you believe that this would, uh, if there was a tangible war effort uh, with uh, America or other countries with Iran, if it would define these presidents' uh, careers? Because, I, uh, of course, Trump has so much uh, going on with his, his presidency already, so many accomplishments. And also, uh, I really wonder about uh, where would you personally draw the line as to, you know, when should we engage militarily um, with either bombs, drones, or boots on the ground with these these, these countries. Uh, I mean, with Iran, I mean, because uh, I, I look at historic examples especially yeah. and uh, look at the precedents about how people, uh, when these nations get into war. And especially, I think it's gotten so bad in, in some cases, like in 1967 during the Six Days War, that an American naval vessel was attacked um, during the, this time. 34 Americans died, 171 were yeah. wounded, 
they were bombed by unmarked aircraft, of, of course, but it was the case where you had a, a massive attack take place and uh, by the Israeli Navy and Air Force, but uh, we didn't go to war. But in, I wonder about how, how bad does it have to be before we decide to go to war or uh, not going to war? I think uh, you Christine, asked a very valid question I, Christine, here. I and, just want to yes. say we have, we, have about two, we have about two minutes until we go to commercial. I just wanted to let okay. you Okay. I think that question takes us right back to the disagreement we saw between Tucker Carlson and John Bolton, where Tucker Carlson accused John Bolton of being too hawkish and, and being downright ridiculous to, to talk about a war. In fact, he went so far as to talk about threats of annihilation or demented normal people don't talk like that. This is what he's saying about the approach of just uh, annihilating Iran or going after North Korea. Now, I, I tend to agree to some degree with Tucker Carlson. Maybe I'm somewhere between them both. President Trump, I believe, did the right thing by using restraint. Israel uses restraint. I think it's a good idea to use restraint in keeping with democratic freedoms represents. We have an appreciation for life. We don't like to see civilian life, even those who may be our enemies, die. We don't like to see casualties. And, of course, we look after our own people that are fighting in those wars. War is a very serious thing. It's nasty. It's dirty. It, it destroys people's lives, literally. So when do we draw that line? I have to stand with Trump and say, it's difficult to know when, and we have to watch very closely with what, which is what Israel and America are doing, and responding right. as opposed to just going ahead and attacking. Because if Trump just goes ahead attacking Iran, I believe what Tucker says, it, it could cost him an election because he could be deemed as being erratic, and I don't think it's a smart thing. However, if Iran pulls a stunt to drag America into war because it causes so much, uh, maybe casualties itself, like let's say it decides to attack Israel, I don't think attacking Iran at that point will cost Trump an election. So it comes down right. to what will Iran do and how will Trump respond? And it's a really horrible question because what Iran might do might destroy a lot of lives in the process. But we don't have a crystal yeah. ball, so we have to use restraint and we have to use intellect and be very careful, particularly when we're dealing with strategy before an election, but also with the safety and with a country that is very dangerous, not just in what it represents, but the other countries that support it. And perhaps we could talk more about what could happen based on support for Iran after. Absolutely. Well, I do, I do want to bring you back. I, I, I do got to get to my next guest, but I do want to have you back here in about the next couple of weeks. Uh, but please tell everybody where they can find all your work, uh, connect with you, all that good stuff. Jihadwatch.org. You could find all of my writings. And it's a good idea to reach Front Page Magazine as well where I edit because we've got excellent writers there as well and lots of information coming out of Front Page Magazine. But you'll definitely find me. I could easily be contacted by Jihad Watch, through Jihad Watch. All right, sounds good, and we always appreciate you. You're, you're an amazing guest. You're so insightful. Thank and, you. Uh, you're doing all, great yourself. Thank, thank you so much, and we'll, we'll have you back here in the next bye -bye. couple of weeks. I look forward to it. All right, bye. We'll be right back, everybody, with Michael John. Stay with us. Would you know what to do in the event of an active shooter, a terrorist attack, or an unforeseen altercation? Whether at home or in the workplace, SkyRace Security can train you and your employees how to defuse a potential violent situation. 
our goal at SkyRays Security is to keep our clients safe. With our professional and experienced Israeli Defense Force trainers, we teach strategies for safety that may someday save lives. Sign up at SkyRaysSecurity.com for our workplace violence prevention and training classes or call 240-888-0682. Hello, everybody. This is Rory Sodder from the Rory Sodder Show. Are you an aspiring entrepreneur? Do you have an app idea? Do you want to save money? Well, I got great news for you. My company, GetYourAppBuilt.com, charges a fraction of the cost compared to anywhere else. And all of our work is the same amount of professionalism you'd see from any other company. Uh, please visit our website, GetYourAppBuilt.com, for your free consultation and contact us today. Thank you. Hello, everybody. This is Rory Sodder from The Rory Sodder Show. Please visit TheDonaldJTrumpStore.com for all your authentic, customized, and creative President Trump apparel and merchandise. You won't find products like this anywhere else. And best part of all, it's made here right in the USA. Use Mega45 at checkout for 30% off your first purchase. Again, visit TheDonaldJTrumpStore.com today for a wide variety of great selections. Thank you. Is video a part of your strategy for 2019? Hi, I'm Rob Hicks with Hicks Video, your remote video production specialist. Using equipment you already own, I help you deliver high-value videos to your audience. From interviews and demonstrations to online meetings and trainings, I work with you to shape your stories and subjects that demonstrate your subject matter expertise. If you're a product specialist, sales executive, or business owner, we make video production simple and affordable. We do this so that you can make videos on a regular basis, whether it's daily, weekly, or monthly, to communicate about the topics and discussions that are important to you, your audience, and your business. To make your videos, we use HD video conferencing that allows you and your guests to connect to our studio from your home or office using your laptop, phone, or tablet. Once you and your guests have connected to our studio, we do all the rest. We take care of the TV graphics, the intro videos, the outro videos, the music, the behind-the-scenes production. Everything that it takes to either live stream or locally record your video for post-production editing to social media, whether it's YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, you name it. If you're tired of seeing the empty balloon commercials that are being made by your competition's social media experts, give me a call. I work directly with you, the subject matter expert, to help shape your story and ideas in a professional and polished manner via video. If you're ready to take a deep dive on your expertise and showcase the essence of your business via video, give me a call or connect with me online. I'm Rob Hicks with Hicks Video, the remote video production specialist, the doer's resource for online video production. And we are back, the Rory Sauter Show, coast to coast, worldwide, listened to in 24 different countries on nearly 70 online platforms. And everybody, if you miss any past episodes, past clips, or need 24-7 breaking news coverage, visit my media site, thenexgenusa.com. And also remember, in about a month, we will be releasing our brand-new 24-7 media network uh, that will be uh, having a lot of notable names doing their own shows. We're raising a lot of money for it. Uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, America's toughest sheriff, will be the face of it, as well as uh, Robert Spencer. And we're very, very excited I do want to welcome to the show 
very talented, very popular guy, a former White House speechwriter, heritage policy analysis, and currently, and no, actually, and the co-founder of the National Tea Party Movement, Michael Johns. Welcome to the show, buddy. Hey, thanks, Rory. How are you? I'm doing well. It's really a pleasure to have you here. Uh, you have an unbelievable resume, my friend. Uh, you've been through everything in life. You've uh, had unbelievable success. You can't even really put it into words in, in a lot of ways. But, you know, it's your first time on my show. And like, what I like to do when my guests first come on is give a bio of themselves. You know, tell us how it all started for you. Tell us how you got to where you were today and all the different uh, adventures along the way. I, I've always said that the, the uh, my sort of entree into politics and public policy was in a lot of ways a ref, uh, experience that I had had in uh, growing up in uh, Pennsylvania, in the industrial area of Pennsylvania, and the Leah Valley, and the experience that I had there, and then collegiate experiences I had at the University of Miami, where I think I had my first uh, first person uh, exposure to the impact that communism was having, and pretty quickly uh, developed an anti-communist position, and then you know through a series of experiences uh, at a collegiate level, and then ultimately in Washington, um, as you mentioned, starting out at the Heritage Foundation, which I think is one of the greatest um, think tanks in the world, one of the greatest public policy research institutes, core to our conservative movement. And um, and then through, yeah, a, a good number of uh, really fortunate uh, opportunities that I've had to see uh, public policy and politics from a whole bunch of different perspectives. Um, you know, including in, you know, kind of from an idea uh, standpoint and think tanks, from a governmental standpoint, the White House and in Congress, um, you know, from a nonprofit standpoint, and ultimately and importantly from a grassroots standpoint, um, which I think is really in many ways what matters most. You know, how the American people feel things are going and what's on their minds. Um, so yeah, I've had a good good opportunity through all of that. And let me ask you, I mean, you know, how, how surreal and incredible was the experience of being the president of the United States' you know, speechwriter? I mean, you were – you correct me if I'm wrong, but you were the speechwriter for Bush, correct? Right, for Bush 41. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in, obviously um, hugely important. The uh, words of the president of the United States are – Almost always the most important words articulated in our day-to-day news cycle. They can um, be the core of war and peace. They can be the core of uh, economic development or recessions. They can crash stock markets. They can uh, you know, essentially really have profound impact. So they are important. And uh, and then obviously they have political importance because in many, in many ways when you kind of – look at the news on a day-to-day basis, it's in a lot of ways the President of the United States and his opponents carrying out an ongoing conversation, one-way conversation usually, with the American people about the direction of the country and what's going well, what's not going well, um, and, and the direction that that should take. And that's hugely important because I think in many ways it's the way people's perspective has developed. Um, I think it's been one of the great successes of President Trump. 
from the very beginning of his candidacy. Um, and for most hugely successful presidents of our lifetime, at least, it's been at the core of their success. I mean, you have to say Reagan was labeled a great communicator for, you know, good reason. Uh, he was inspirational and yet really articulated the conservative ideas, I think, um, in, in ways that people understood and grasped. And you had that, um, you know, I think uh, continuing through both Bush presidencies through difficult periods of time, but, you know, in, in new ways and kind of nuanced conservatism that, that deviated in some ways from Reagan conservatism. And then clearly Obama in 08, I mean, moved the country with a lot of rhetoric, none of which he delivered on, obviously, as president, but, you know, sold the country in a ways, in a way on, on um, an approach that he was going to take or that was promising to take that he really never did take in the way of moderation and and in um, consensus building and of course proved the exact opposite but it was the rhetoric that got him to the White House and I would I would argue that um, you know really the the grassroots um, speeches that President Trump was able to give large filling large stadiums and communicating yeah. for the first time some of these important ideas on immigration and trade, which had been neglected right. for so long. This was kind of at the core of what rallied uh, grassroots behind him, allowed him to secure the nomination and ultimately the presidency. And how does, I mean, how does, you know, explain to the audience, how does someone become the, the main speechwriter for the president of the United States? I mean, How'd you get there? I mean, it, it's it's quite the story, man. I mean, you know, you're you're doing a job yeah. pretty much only only one person gets, and you were the go-to guy. I mean, that's 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 beyond impressive. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of uh, effort and work, but it's also ultimately good fortune of being in the right place at the right time. And uh, you know, I think I did both of those. I'd spent a long time sort of working on writing skills, communication skills, understanding public policy in great detail. And um, that's a big component of it, understanding the, the inclination of a president, the way they want to address topics, the way they want to approach uh, the electorate uh, is crucially important. Um, president Bush, for instance, was very big on maintaining the American people's confidence in government that was hugely important to him. So, um, and, and at a critical moment, you know, obviously through the end of the Cold War, the first Gulf War, kind of the, a position, a period of time where we redefined our, our post-Cold War um, role in the country. And then the third thing is, you know, just like anything in life, I mean, there's some good luck involved in that. You know, you um, should always try to be proximate, I think, to what you want to do. So if you're, you know, there and you're around and you're doing that sort of work, you get sort of maybe noticed. And if you're not, it's more difficult. Um, and that's the case probably in, in my experience in the private sector as well. There's just a lot of that uh, that drives a lot of these decisions. There's a lot of the point. The point is, there's a lot of competent people out there, you know, obviously. Yes. <clears throat> and um, yeah, so uh, 
you know, these these positions are um, inevitably very very competitive, and they should be competitive. They're important. Yeah, and I, I'm reading I'm reading through you know a lot of your bio and. You know, it, it says that you served as the director and executive, served as a director and executive management team, where an executive management team, sorry, blah, blah, God, I keep, I lost the words for a second, sorry. Uh, it says that you served as a director and executive, on the executive management team member of the International Republican Institute. Tell us about that. All right, so the, um, it's an organization supported by the U.S. government, predominantly by um, State Department, AID. Yes. And the agency and it for says national you, development. It says you, uh, um, you know, you were you were responsible for the de- development of U.S. government-supported political development programs uh, globally. Right, right. So there's four sort of subgroups to this entity: one affiliated loosely with the Democratic Party, one affiliated loosely with the Republican Party, where I worked, one affiliated sort of with the Chamber of Commerce in the sort of private sector world, and one associated with um, with the union areas and all of them work, uh, you know, kind of on a day-to-day basis to, in, in countries around the world to try to structure the political infrastructure of countries, uh, usually at the invitation of these countries or of political parties. And my involvement in that was at a critical moment where you had all these really fragile democracies emerging at the end of the Cold War. It was a moment of great promise, but there was no guaranteed outcome. For instance, in the breakup of the Soviet Union and sort of some of the emerging democratic political sentiments that were beginning to emerge in, in the Middle East, um, in the Persian Gulf regions, and, and in Asia and Africa, Latin America. You know, so I think I've um, my views, you know, on that have evolved over time. I think the U.S. needs to be uh, very calculating where it engages. Uh, yeah. Very much in terms of foreign policy approach. You're cutting out a little American bit. Interest. You're cutting out a little bit. I very much support you're President out. Trump's agenda. I, yes. I say, you're I cutting out much, a little bit, man. Yeah. Can you, you hear me? Okay? Yeah, I can hear you yeah. now, but you were cutting out. Okay. Uh, so but the point being that you have um, – yeah, the point is you have um, – we've, we've in this lifetime, and I don't think we pause enough to think about it, really been through some really historical changes in, in the U.S. role in the world. Uh, but our leadership in it has never been beyond dispute, and I don't think it's in dispute now. Um, there's a lot of things that the U.S. does – Broad that are constructive. We're far and away the most philanthropic uh, nation in the world from the standpoint of uh, development support, from the standpoint of support for, you know, political dem- democratic development. All of these things are hugely important, and um, you know, ultimately serve U.S. interests. So that's kind of the focus. That's kind of the focus of that uh, that particular opportunity. Very, very nice. And, you know, I, I was going to ask you, you know, you, you began your career at, at the Heritage Foundation, one of the world's leading public policy research institutes. And uh, you, you were, you know, one of their uh, foreign policy analysis people. You know, that, that's huge, man. That's, that's a very uh, reputable and known 
uh, place. Yeah, it really is, and it's grown um, hugely over the last few decades. I mean, it really is now, in my, in my view, the centerpiece of American conservatism, but for the most part, it's sort of always been that. I mean, it uh, was founded at a very difficult moment, you know, during the um, 70s when conservatism was not in particular vogue or fashion, where there wasn't really a lot of understanding of conservative ideas. Um and it's grown to be able to articulate our vision, I think, in some pretty competent, capable ways and influence policy in constructive ways. And, you know, the reality of Washington, to be blunt about it, you have a lot of members of Congress who arrived there with very limited understanding of, of the nuances of public policy and, you know, may have vague ideas about what they want to accomplish, but ultimately rely to an enormous extent on guidance and staff and others to um, help them reach some of the conclusions that they ultimately need to reach to be effective in those capacities. And think tanks play an important role uh, in all of that, on the right and on the left. And it's equally true on the left. Yeah, no, no, no absolutely. Uh, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I'm sure you've never seen, you know, hostility and attacks to this extent, like they ha- like they have on Trump. I mean, you you've been around Washington. Right. You've you've, wor- you've worked around a lot of this. Have you ever seen anything like this, or no? Nope, nope. This is as bad as it's ever been. Um, there's always been you know a strong partisan dimension uh, to American politics. It's very difficult, almost impossible, to get involved in this profession and not be considered on the red team or the blue team. That's just kind of the way this system's been set up. Sometimes I wonder if it really even serves us that well, um, the way it's structured. But I've never seen such such great personalization in these attacks, um, such complete unwillingness to work in collaborative ways to try to find at least some consensus, you know, among uh, uh, the parties. And obviously, you know, a great part of that, in my view, has been driven by two themes. One has been the growth of the federal government. There's so much at stake now that I think people fight with greater intensity over it and over their slice of the pie, as it were. And then the other thing is just how far radically left the Democratic Party has moved in the last two decades. And, and um, you know, to the point where, in many respects, it's indistinguishable from any European socialist um, party, and it, its direction is it's so completely antithetical, not obviously to just conservatives and Republicans, but also to the founding principles of the country that I think continue to resonate with the vast majority of Americans. So that's hugely important, and you know, we're a large and diverse country. I mean, you get into um, some of the real rural areas of this country, which are huge parts of it, you know, people have very different visions in a lot of ways than they might within the big cities. People in the middle of the country look at the look at the country differently than they do on the coast for the most part. But we ultimately, in my view, are all unified by adherence to the Constitution, limited government, um, not seeing our our our, our labors taxed away with an excessively large an aggressive uh, government um, ensuring that the U.S. remains secure 
those should be yeah. new unifying themes, but the, as you correctly point out, this president gets almost no cooperation from the Democratic Party, and it seems like every decision that they make is based on the political calculations within right. it, not within the not based on what's in the best interest of the country. And as a DC insider, you know, tell the audience. I mean, you've probably seen everything, you know, during your time on Capitol Hill, you know, and you know, with all these politicians and how deep the swamp really is. I mean, some really nasty players out there. I'll tell you. Tar, yeah, it's um, it's a, it's very much like I, I. By the way, I endorsed President Trump on day one, June sixteenth, two thousand fifteen. Because me I, too. Saw within yeah, him, I yeah. I saw within him some traits that I thought, at least at this moment in time, are essential if we were going to write the country. And I also have been so hugely impressed with the focus and emphasis he's brought to these two neglected areas in trade and immigration. Because I don't think I think if we don't get those two things right, the middle class of the country doesn't survive. And without the middle class, it's very difficult to see the country enduring as we've. Um, experienced it to date. But, you know, the reality of Washington is that it is a swamp. Um, It's not, it's filled with a lot of um, money-driven political agendas. It's not a place that spends a whole lot of time around the grassroots of the country. Uh, It's very insulated. It's filled with people with personal agendas and financial agendas. Lobbyists continue to be probably at the end of the day more important than your typical member of Congress and the actual development of legislation, which is shocking and disgusting. Um, And here's the other thing a lot of people don't realize. I guess if you think about it enough, it makes sense. But the one thing that's so clear is that we, we have two parties that aren't just at war with each other, but the parties themselves are run by leadership. So when you really talk about how Congress gets things done. It's not like you, you're sending, um, you know, 435 members of the House to go and develop um, their individual ideas and put them through hearings. All the all the things you were probably taught about how Congress works in in um, you know civics and in in junior or senior high school. You know, in reality, it's very leadership driven. It's what a speaker wants. It's what, you know, House majority and House minority leaders want. That is what really drives the agenda of both parties. And it's disappointing to see that there's not more sensitivity to the fact that, you know, every member of Congress is sent there by the people to represent their district and the country and the and you know, really should be given a lot more um, consideration to their ideas and uh, more opportunity to bring legislation to the floor. Most, legisl- most legislative ideas never reach the floor, never given an right. opportunity to be voted on um, because they don't fit with the leadership's agenda or their political agenda at that moment. Those are all the things to, to a large extent that President Trump spoke about during the 2015-16 campaign. I think the American people knew it to begin with, but he brought it home to them. And, um, you know, obviously, as you've seen here over the last couple of years, ridding the country of that culture is, is not easily done. Um, right. The D.C. insiders view Trump as everything they fear the most. Uh, they want yeah. nothing but his uh, political and 
you know, defeat. They've criminalized his his political victory in in horrific, unacceptable ways, and really distracted the country from the priorities I think we need to be focused on. Yeah, and what what do you think about this whole Mueller witch hunt? I mean, have you ever seen uh, a bigger uh, abuse of power in your life? I mean, or is this as ridiculous as it's ever gotten? uh you know from from your eyes yeah this is as ridiculous as it's ever gotten because i think we have just i mean the fact that we are now going to continue to hear mueller testify after he put out this exhaustive uh 30 million dollar investigative report that concluded definitively even though they want to I guess dismiss this, that there was no collusion with Russia is absurd. And it's it's simply designed as a national political distraction to take the president off of his game, to put the administration on defense, to consume its time, its energy, its resources. They're issuing, you know, subpoenas almost every day against the administration staff and simultaneously, as I mentioned earlier, not working in a collaborative way toward um, resolving some really serious challenges that we have in this country that it just, if we don't get them right, need to, we're, you know, it's very difficult to see the country enduring as, as we've known it. Immigration, obviously, kind of first and foremost in that agenda. I mean, it's just absurd on the border that we haven't yeah. been able to get the funds to secure this this border, it's an immense threat, and, uh, you know, we're going to spend more, you know, the last few weeks of this session talking about more about Russia and, and, and a uh, facade of um, of collusion that we just had the entire independent council conclude never happened. Yeah, I mean, it, it's you getting – so it's, it's I, don't, I don't see what – I really don't see it serving any higher ends. Uh, it's going to be a partisan show on both sides. Um, yep. And and you know the whole idea of this independent council was to put the issue to rest definitively, so that it would not have to be revisited. I'm not sure the special counsel was warranted to begin with, frankly. But once it was appointed, um, he certainly was given more than enough information. The Trump administration cooperated almost fully in every respect yeah. with you know document requests and you know, um, um, interview requests. And ultimately it was an investigation that, uh, that concluded that the, the founding thesis under which it was formed, that the campaign had somehow colluded with this hostile state abroad was utterly untrue. And that should close the book definitively on it for everyone. But when your right. singular goal is the political demise of the president, it's, um, you know, you keep wanting to hold on to it. Yeah, no, you're you're right, uh, Doctor Branch. Go ahead. Yes, hi. First of all, uh, we're we're having monsoons come through, and I keep getting dropped because of it. So if I lose you, that's the reason. Uh, I want to thank you for being on the show tonight, and your prior guest too, Christine, as well. And you know, some a couple of things that I wanted to chime in on is. Um, you know, looking at the squad uh, that we have um, and not seeing anything like this before where, you know, they're really pushing the notion of multinationalism. Um, I know that Christine was from Canada 
And up in Canada, they have multinationalism. That's the reason why they have hate speech laws. But in the United States, we're recognized as a melting pot. So I think that, you know, when Donald Trump is speaking, he's speaking of the melting pot. Don't put our country down. However, with the multinationalism movement that you see from the squad, I, I really believe that, you know, one of the most racist comments that I have heard in quite a while has been from the squad when they said, we don't need any more, you know, brown faces. We need uh, brown voices. We don't need any more, you know, people with black face. We need more black uh, voices. We don't right. need more Muslims. And to me, that is uh, pushing a narrative of multinationalism uh, over what we have in the United States, where most of us always believed in when our parents and grandparents came over to this country, uh, we know that uh, they were to assimilate and become a melting pot. So I want, you know, I want your opinion of that is, 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 you know, why, why, why isn't the news and the left, you know, condemning that type of rhetoric as far as the uh, we don't need, uh, you know, another face. We need another voice that is separate, a separate voice. But also, you know, going back on, on a speech, you know, from uh, Bush 41 with the thousand points of light, was that multinationalism as well? Uh, okay, so first on the squad, I mean, my, my view on, on these four are that they have been um, rhetorical lightning rods in Washington whose attention is completely disproportionate to the actual influence that they've had. There's no singular piece of legislation that they've put forward. Just the opposite, in fact, on the, if you look on the, on the border funding, they, they all voted against it while they're simultaneously uh, complaining that there's not an adequate amount of compassion for, um, for refugees in the region while we're being overwhelmed with over 100,000 crossing the border every month. Um, in my judgment, they're taking symbolic votes. They're issuing symbolic speeches and talk. Their agenda is clearly very far to the left. I'm not even sure how coherent the whole thing is. I don't know how much it really adds up. It's obviously not been fully embraced um, by the party. Uh, or by Pelosi. I think there's a lot more inner attention than uh, is even realized. And so, well, you can sort of see that they are lightning rods and that there is, I guess, some potential that their influence is going to snowball and grow uh, over time. And maybe they, maybe they do, and I think they likely do, represent the future of the ideology of the Democratic Party, which is much further to the left than, say, that of JFK or those that most people, I think, grew up appreciating the Democratic Party to stand for. Um, their influence to date has been non-existent. And, um, and by the way, that's true of the Democratic Party generally, and that's been a choice that right. they've made. Between, between working with the administration, being able to go back in 2020 uh, um, election cycle and say, hey, look, here are the things we did on infrastructure. Here's what we did on immigration reform and on the border. Here's what we did on, on trade. Here's what we did in 
uh, in veterans care. Here's what we did in national security and health care reform. All of these things that they've spent a long time talking about, when push comes to shove, they've had no action. Uh, they've had no creative ideas. They have nothing but contempt for the president. I really that's the essence of every of uh, the beginning and end of their ideology. A thousand points of light. Um, you know, I don't think it was a multinational initiative. It uh, you know ultimately was. Uh, part of a, a philosophy we were trying to cultivate, which was then known as compassionate conservatism, and it was rooted in the idea that the there were many things that could be done privately in the United States that the government did not necessarily need to take on as responsibilities if volunteerism and philanthropy were encouraged and supported, and if individuals stood up and um, pursued those, and if we had you know, a political and policy and governmental culture that encouraged that. So really, you know, 2,000 points of light was, was really an actual policy initiative that was designed to encourage the American people to be more engaged in volunteerism and in philanthropic giving, and uh, which is obviously hugely important and constructive. Um, and the American people are a very giving people. But also it was important because... In the absence of that, um, the fallback position is government taking on responsibilities that it's not historically proven very successful in managing, and in the judgment of, of many of us, including obviously this this mammoth Tea Party movement, which has defined the politics of the last decade, uh, is uh, is not constitutionally uh, empowered uh, to the to the um, to the federal government to be doing. I mean, and that's um, hugely problematic. So this was kind of the beginning of that. It's to sort of say that um, between the sort of, I don't know what I would call it, maybe the libertarian rhetoric of just saying, hey, go figure it out yourself. We know there's poverty. We know there's homeless. That's not a, a political message that resonates too well with the American people. It's not one that President Bush um, supported. On the other hand, this idea that, hey, government can do everything and government can take care of you and everything's going to be free has been time-tested now for a century and in dozens upon dozens of countries. It's failed everywhere, and it's failing here, um, and that should be clear-cut to everyone. But that still leaves us, if you just look at those two options, with no identifiable solution, and one of the identifiable solutions, which has got to be part of broader policy initiatives is to say, hey, how do we address some of these clear um, challenges in the country in ways that um, are proactive and not neglectful and yet are not um, ones of, of government takeover? So that was really kind of the core of Thousand Points Away. Uh, Kevin, go ahead. Wow, it's so great to talk with someone so experienced, uh, especially someone as yourself. Um, so I'm really curious about how uh, you perceive uh, how the Tea Party has changed uh, since its inception to right now, especially in terms of uh, Donald Trump's impact on the political atmosphere, and um, if uh, nationalism uh, might play any, any role in that. And um, I, from what I've heard personally from uh, Tea Party leaders in the local area, I'm in Arizona, uh, they say that mm -hmm. the Tea Party has uh, three pillars, and that's the, the Constitution, um, so the, the rule of law, very self-explanatory, 
Uh, two being fiscal conservatism, essentially low taxes, get rid of uh, these regulations, uh, no government bureaucracy and wasteful spending kind of thing. And then uh, the third pillar uh, being free market. So, um, so, yeah, so my question is, uh, do you see that the Tea Party has evolved in, in recent years with Donald Trump? Um, and does nationalism play any, any role in that? Um, well, I would say the Tea Party movement has been a very nationalist uh, movement from the very beginning. It's not realized by many people, but uh, President Trump was very supportive of the Tea Party movement from the very beginning. He, in fact, spoke at Tea Party uh, rallies in 2011 in Florida, and rhetorically, when asked about it, was always hugely, hugely um, uh, supportive of it. And, you know, the, and the founding principles, I think, generally adherence to the Constitution, limited government, lower taxes. Um, and when I look at what this president's doing, adherence to the Constitution, I think he's done more to advance um, constitutional objectives, particularly with the judicial appointments he's made, than any president in our lifetime thus far, and he's just getting going. Um, and then clearly on low taxes, I mean, his tax cuts are the, are the deepest that we've experienced in our lifetime. So that's been uh, hugely important, too. He didn't really run on an agenda of cutting the size of government. And I'm understanding and, and supportive of that in the sense that um, the biggest challenges that we had, if you go back to 1516, I still think it's the case today, is growth and job creation and uh, global economic competitiveness. And, you know, those really have to be the policy priorities. And his approach to that of cutting excessive regulations and, and getting our corporate rate down from 35 to uh, 20%, so we're at least competitive with our, with our, with our trading partners, hugely important. Uh, put, getting these trade agreements corrected, hugely important. It's all been, I think, for the most part, pretty consistent with the Deep Party movement. And I will say... Well, as I said earlier, I, I endorsed the president on day one and um, was very prominently supportive of his campaign throughout. There were, um, you know, there obviously were other views within our movement. I mean, I think it, by most calculations, we have about 40 million people who somehow were affiliated with the Tea Party movement. It's almost inconceivable that everyone's going to see everything the same way, and particularly when you think about the um, the fact that many of the candidates that were in that 16 election ran as Tea Party candidates. I mean, Marco Rubio ran as a Tea Party candidate. Rand Paul ran as a Tea Party candidate. Ted Cruz ran as a Tea Party candidate. So you had right there three of the, the 16 who – didn't to say, hey, we yeah, this Tea Party movement's a great idea, and I support it. They themselves are part of it. They are part of it, and still are part of it. Um, so it was understandable in my eyes that, particularly given how close we've grown with those three senators and then presidential candidates, that some leadership in the movement and some members of the movement were going to, because of that closeness, gravitate to them. And while I know all three of those guys well um, and think highly of them, and I'm so happy they're in the Senate, you know, just I, my own view on this, which was shared by others, was that there were, the, 
there were policy issues that, that President Trump was bringing to the forefront that needed to be brought to the forefront that I don't think these other candidates would have done as aggressively, if at all. And then secondly, his his experience and his uh, um, even some of his personality leadership traits of strength were so critically important at this moment. I think, frankly, that this man has saved the Republican Party and uh, from almost irrelevancy, which is, I think is where we were headed with the messaging and the approach that had been taken with the McCain and Romney races, which frankly were absolute disasters politically and, and otherwise. They did yeah. not involve the grassroots of the country. They did not bring about a lot of excitement. Um, and I think in many ways, the, the positions that they put out were ones that they were not resonating with people. That were, I think the, the message was, hey, you don't really get what we're facing out here in yeah. the country with the erosion of middle-class jobs and wages not rising and the challenges that immigration are put, put placing, not just on the national level, but on the community level, you know, with um, schools being overwhelmed, with um, illegals not speaking English, resource uh, uh, resources that are being depleted, just goes on and on. The list just goes on and on of the, the, the problems that have emerged, all of which have the common denominator of stemming from the illegal, yeah. illegal immigration problem. Uh, Dan, Dan, Dan. Well, just to echo what uh, Kevin and Dr. Uh, it is a. I think muted. Oh. We had some technical difficulties here. Uh, just echoing what Dr. Branch and Kevin said, it, it's a tremendous honor to have you on the program and with your extensive background and especially serving President 41. May he rest in peace. What a, what a true gentleman and statesman, statesman excuse me, he was. Uh, Kevin, I don't know if you, if you caught, tuned in earlier, but uh, I'm actually – I'll be running in 2024 as a Republican, and I'll be running as a Nationalist United candidate. That is Mr. Kevin DeKuyper's group, and there are some really important things that, uh, that they are pivoting towards. I kind of want to ask you something that I think about a lot, which is that uh, the real consequences of elections is that, is that sometimes actually solutions that are presented, if not accepted, expire. Um, Pat Buchanan, for example, and, and not to, again, and I'm a very big supporter of President 41, but Pat Buchanan in, in his primary brought up many very important concerns that really were not addressed up until the Trump administration. And sure. I, I wonder if you share some of my concerns about uh, losing some flexibility to handle things with these type of limited government approaches when you look at sort of the cultural trends in place and compounded by the demographic trends that are in place and you look at how things project over the next 10 to 20, 30 years, I, I wonder if you share my concerns about uh, the, the need actual and actually losing the ability to sort of run on that. The, the term that I use is, is compassionate authority which is what I think is, frankly, what we're going to have to come up with to solve these problems. And I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that about the need for the conservative movement to grow stronger. And I guess to ask if, if 
some of the problems that we faced required us to go outside of our traditional scope of what we view as constitutional conservatism, is that something that you would be receptive to if you had to choose between one of those two scenarios? We have about a minute. We have about a minute left, Michael. Just want to. Uh, okay, uh, that's a that's a deep and complicated question. I don't think there's any reason that we would need to deviate from our constitution, and I think that would set a very dangerous precedent. So no on that. On the other hand, I do think that that President Trump's had it right, and he's gone against the grain of historical Republican positions. I do not see any reason right now that we need to be cutting uh, Medicare or Social Security. These are programs that should not be depicted as welfare programs or the programs that working Americans have paid into and feel an entitlement to, and in fact have an entitlement to. Maybe if we were starting from the very beginning, we would restructure those programs a little differently than they are right now. But for the most part, they are critically important um, to elderly Americans and need to be defended. So I'm with him on that. And I think the issue of putting America first is just common sense, and we have not done that in decades of um, uh, in this country. We've put everyone's considerations above our own, and if we don't do that, we're, this country is not going to persevere and, and uh, endure in the way that all of us want to see it uh, done. guys with me? Microphone was on mute. Uh, please tell everybody where they can find you and uh, communicate with you and find your work. Yep, I'm everywhere, but the best best is usually to follow me on Twitter, and it's just my name, Michael Johns, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-J-O-H-N-S. And I have a link on that page also to my Facebook page, which is worth following. And, you know, my sort of parting advice to everyone is to get politically involved if you're not. And if you are involved, looking for ways to step things up. And all of us are in this together. We've got to work well together. We've got to collaborate. We can't allow any little petty differences or anything to tear us apart. Uh, we need to stand behind the president. We need to try to take back the House in 2020. And uh, the good news is we've, I think, shown, and I think the Tea Party movement shown in taking back the House in 10 and taking back the Senate in 14 and I think laying the ground for a grassroots political campaign in 16 that uh, grassroots political action is alive and well in this country and can be successful. And uh, yeah. we need to continue to put resources into it and all of us work you know, well together. And that's always been my approach. So I've talked to anybody who's engaged, anybody who wants to be engaged. I'm always accessible and try to, you know, provide the best guidance, counsel and support I can. Um, I think that's part of, of uh, grassroots conservative leadership. And keep pushing on and keep fighting and, you know, no retreat, no surrender. All right. Th thank you, Michael. We'll have you back soon. Thank you. Thank you guys. Pleasure to be with you. All right. Take care. Take care. Um, let's go to Kevin. Kevin, tell everybody where they can connect with you and find you. Uh, great show as always, Rory. You can find me at any social media at Nationalist United and uh, nationalistunited.com. Thank you. All right. Sounds good. Uh, let's go to Dr. Branch. Tell everybody where they can find you. Yes, I'm Dr. Branch. You're cutting out, Dr. Branch. 
You can find me at drbobbranch.com. That's drbobbranch.com. Thank you, Rory. Jim, thank you, my friend. Um, uh, Dick, Daryl, want to say hi to Dr. Branch real quick. Haven't heard your voice in a while. God bless your your entire audience. Great show. Daryl Kane, 2024.com. And you can find me heart reacting anything that Kevin DeKuyper or Nationalist United posts on Facebook. Good. Um, I want to thank everyone uh, for tuning in tonight. I want to thank all my audience, my co-hosts, sponsors, and guests. You guys are absolutely incredible. The show is listened to in 24 different countries on nearly 70 online platforms. Everybody, I couldn't do it without all of you. Um, this is everything you'd want in a show. Uh, there's some things, obviously, I did not get to tonight, and I'll get to that tomorrow. Just a few quick announcements that is good news. Uh, ESPN has agreed to stop talking about politics because their ratings have gone way down. Uh, you know, we have a lot of, there were a lot of Trump supporters watching ESPN, but we're forced to turn it off. So definitely backfiring on them, which is good news. And I also want to mention uh, another huge thing that is uh, going on that uh, President Trump personally, personally called the leader of Sweden and is vouching for ASAP Rocky and I mean, this is going to skyrocket his support even more in the black community. I mean, we already know he's gained so much uh, traction and voters in the black community, but this is only just going to add to it. And it really is a a phenomenal thing. And uh, everybody, I will see you all tomorrow night, 10 p.m. Eastern. I'm Rory Sauter. Mega, mega, mega. God bless everybody. Cheers.